Welcome to Behind the Buyouts, the deals podcast where we sit down with venture capitalists, private equity pros, and company executives to drill down into their capital raising transactions and acquisitions. I'm Steve Jelsey, senior writer at The Deal. Today, we're joined by Josh Fabian, an African-American entrepreneur, co-founder, and CEO of Medify, a Pittsburgh-based company that helps connect esports stars to coach everyday players. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Josh, your company uh, recently won a seed round of venture capital funding to boost the business. We'll get to that in a minute. But tell us about your experience launching Medify and the role of your co-founder, Thomas McNiven. It's, it's been a crazy experience. You know, in a lot of ways, <laughs> COVID has been a nightmare for everyone. But I'd be lying if I said that it didn't benefit the gaming industry. And us in particular, a big part of why we raised this round, I think, is is largely because of both COVID and the Black Lives Matter movement happening at the same time. So it's definitely been interesting. And then for my co-founder, he's been someone I've talked to and worked alongside every day for the last 10 years. So I think that if it weren't for Tom, I'm certain we wouldn't be launching Metafine in the first place. There were definitely times over the last two years that we've been thinking about this idea that I've kind of given up and he was the one who pulled me back in. Uh, and I think that's why having a co-founder is so important. So yeah, just to kind of recap, I mean, your, your company has been around for less than a year. So I guess it was launched in August of 2020. Tell us about how it came about. And I guess you and Thomas knew each other for 10 years. Uh, so how did you get to know each other then? And give us a little bit of the backstory. Yeah, so Metify is about seven months old at this point. We are so young that you know the ceiling is still leaking, the floor is not finished. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, we we don't know what we don't know uh, in in a lot of aspects still. In terms of meeting Tom, I actually had a platform prior to this called Kitsu, and Kitsu is a social curation platform for anime and manga fans. My original co-founder ended up taking a job at Amazon. And I had to open source the platform to find a developer to help me continue to build because my expertise is on the product and design side. Tom was an open source contributor. You know, He was a user in the community and he wanted to help. And in a weekend, he built out a very comprehensive wiki system that allowed the million users we had in the platform to meaningfully change the content on the site. And he did it by himself. And it was incredibly well documented and thought through. And me being me, I knew I had to be friends with this guy. I couldn't afford to lose him. So, you know, I, I uh, started talking to him and, and I really just wanted to keep him around. And sure enough, we did end up becoming friends and the rest is history. So, so, so how did you guys get the role, the, the idea from Metify? I guess your kids were trying to learn how to play Pokemon or something like that. And, and you, and you figure you try to get an expert in to try to help them out. Yeah. I hope one day my kids are listening to this so that I can remind them uh, when they're older that I'm still a better gamer than they are. But gaming goes far back for me. Uh, as a teenager, I played a, a game called Yu-Gi-Oh. Sure. That wasn't, that, a, that, wasn't that with game cards though? Or that was a video game too? Uh, well, it was with trading cards, but trading cards have, have migrated digitally now, but the, the foundation is, is the same. And that aspect of gaming remains the same. And that was, that was really my start in competitive play. And I was nationally ranked. You know, my dad was driving me all around the country to compete, which he hated, but he loves me. So he did it anyway. <laughs> and when I went into my adult career, I carried a lot of that with me. That experience was something that I couldn't forget. And when I left Groupon, where I was a lead designer of the Groupon Stores initiative, 
I went back to gaming. I went to a game called Clash Royale and I did fairly well in that game. I played eight hours a day and eight hours a day doing anything is a lot of time. But for me, it was, it was a job. I wanted to win more than anything. So I'd play for eight hours. And if I lost a game, I'd write it down in a notebook. I'd write down who I lost to, and I'd write down what I could have done differently. And that hard work paid off. I was top 20 in the world in the game for about a year. Um, wow, that's incredible! Did you, did you make? Did, did you make? How old were you when, when this happened? And were you generating any income at this point? <laughs> I wish you and I wouldn't be talking if I if I had. I didn't. I did not make much money. Uh, I was making about thirty dollars a day, even though I was one of the best players in the world and I was the number one streamer for the game on Twitch and on YouTube. I just wasn't making money, and it came to a head when I started coaching. You know, someone on my stream asked me if I could teach them to play like I play. And I said, I could do it for a hundred dollars an hour, which to me wasn't what I thought my value was for gaming, but that's what I valued my time at as a professional. So that's what, that's the rate I, I chose. That's less than a therapist costs, I think usually. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's cost effective. True. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but he agreed, he paid for it. And that year I made about 40,000 as a coach before giving up and going back to tech. And that led to my kids picking up Pokemon as a result. And we hired one of the best players in the world to teach them. And he was charging $20 an hour, which I could not believe. I asked him a few weeks after if he was doing Pokemon for a living. And he said, no, I wish. I make 30K a year working in a warehouse. Oh, That's where the idea for Medify came from. So you would help out this person that has a skill that, you know, there's only charging 20 bucks an hour for, and then you'd also help out your kids at the same time. And how, how old are your kids? So today my kids are 10, nine, eight, and my daughter is three. So, so you had been an entrepreneur to some extent, uh, you mentioned you started a company. So you're kind of an entrepreneur by trade and before Medify, but getting back to Medify, how did you decide to get the funding from the firms that you did? It's pretty unusual that you're able to get a $3 million seed round, uh, in a company that was only a few months old. So can you kind of walk us through what happened there? Yeah, there was an accelerator that was announced called product club. Uh, it was ran by Jeff Morse jr. And a friend sent it to me. And I saw it and I, I saw who was going to be a part of that accelerator in terms of people that would be teaching you and mentoring you. And in some of the Discord communities that I was a part of for entrepreneurship, everybody was talking about it. So I applied, but I applied for it in the same way that one buys a lottery ticket. You don't really sure. expect to win. And you know, if you did, you, there'd be more ceremony around scratching that ticket, right? You, you'd invite your family over or you'd hide from your family. <laughs> but, you know, for, for me, I didn't really think we'd get in. I just applied. I put very little effort into the application. So you can imagine my surprise when a week later, I got an email telling me that we were in the top 15 and they would like to have a 15 minute lightning inter interview with us. And I remember Tom and I had a discussion where I was making great money in my career. And he was making great money in his. We had moved away from, from Kitsu. And we just weren't sure. You know, It was a little scary to take that step because it meant taking a step to be full-time on something that we didn't know would work. And I think every entrepreneur goes through that, that scary period of, do I jump? You know, do I put both feet in? And for us, we, we ultimately decided to. We had that 15-minute lightning interview. And a week later, we got the email. We were the first company chosen of the three they were going to choose to be a part of the accelerator. That gave us $100,000. And for me, 
that was a dream. That that was my chance to build something that I've wanted to build for three years now that we've been actively looking at building for two. So it meant everything to me. And at that point, we were all in. So you said you didn't really think you were going to win, but what what was it about Metify that you think uh, you know got them so interested? I guess maybe there's not that many players out there that are doing what you guys were trying to do. I think that great investors, when they're looking at early companies, tend to look for founder startup fit. When you look online, you'll see a lot of advice saying product market fit as the North Star. But I think before product market fit comes founder startup fit. You know, what makes this person uniquely qualified to solve this problem better than anyone else on the planet? Mm. And I think when Jeff was looking at our application, he saw two founders, both of which have played at the highest level in different games. And for me, I've taken my kids from being able to barely read to getting a coach and working with their coach and with them to where they are today as you know, my 10-year-old and 9-year-old are top 100 in the world in Pokemon. So they're not playing at the highest possible level. So That's I think incredible. when Jeff saw that combined with my product experience, he saw a founder that had a unique opportunity to do something that others had failed to do. And I think our other investors look for similar when they're looking at very early stage companies. Yeah. I mean, I just want to point out to the listeners here that this is early stage seed rounds. Uh, These types of rounds are relatively small and they're relative long shots in the world of venture capital, but you got to start somewhere. And uh, it looks like Medify is off to a pretty good start so far. Uh, So you got a $3 million seed round. So so yeah, so you got into the accelerator. How did you get the seed round going? And uh, the lead investor there was Forerunner Ventures. That's an independent venture capital firm founded in 2003 by Kirsten A. Green. So take us through that chapter. Yeah. When we were about a month into Product Club, we started getting outreach from investors. And a lot of that outreach was kind of just feeling things out. I think a lot of entrepreneurs when they first start getting these, these email, the cold emails from investors, it's very exciting. They don't yet realize that most of those go nowhere. It's just a part of being an investor is you're constantly sending emails out. Uh, and for me, I was initially very excited about that because for the first time I had, an, I had many emails. My inbox was full of investors that, were, that wanted to talk. Jeff's advice to us was focus on product. Don't worry about fundraising because it's going to take up all your time. About two months in, where you're going with the product seemed very clear. And we were at a point now where we had a, an MVP. And that's when we really started talking to investors. And those early discussions, they went well because I was working incredibly hard to put us out there. You know, I was writing blog posts on Medium. I was giving talks in the community. And I think, again, you know, investors aren't they're really not this like thing on a pedestal or this above human kind of creature. They're just as susceptible as marketing or to brand as anyone is. That's true. So when they yes. see a founder who's creating a brand around this, they get excited. And I think that for a lot of people, they'll try to raise money, but they're working in silence. And then they come up to the surface for air and they say, who wants to give me money? That's a really hard thing to, to pull off. So for us, we've been building in public since the beginning. So building in public keeps you honest. And building in public keeps people excited about what you're building. And that includes investors. So as a direct result of that, we've never reached out to investors. I've never once sent a cold email to an investor, but our seed round was oversubscribed. Mm-hmm. And that's a direct result of 
our putting our, uh, ourselves out there, not specifically to investors, but to our community. You have to have that authenticity. And we had that authenticity where we were putting ourselves out there to the gaming community. And then I would personally put myself out there to the entrepreneurship community where I would say, here's what's going well with the business and here's what isn't. And I was just very honest. No investor expects an early stage company to have everything figured out. If you're honest about that, they're more likely to trust you. Mm-hmm. If you go to these investors and you say, nope, we've got it all figured out and here's how we become a billion dollar company, they're gonna, <laughs> their, their radar is going to kind of detect that. So for us, we've tried to stay very authentic and honest. And that led to the conversations with people like Forerunner. And that led to people like Naval coming in and investing and Bucky and, and Bing from Kleiner Perkins. They're really just looking for authenticity and, and someone that they think is going to go all the way. Oh, I didn't know the Kleiner Perkins connections, but in the announcements that you put out a few weeks ago, I guess you drew support from Tekton Ventures and M25. Angel investors included Naval Ravikant, co-founder and former CEO of AngelList. Matt Cooper, CEO of Skillshare, executives at Facebook and Microsoft and founders of esports teams, Tempo Storm and Tribe Gaming. So you got a, a lot of participation there. Actually, before we move on, any other kind of shout outs to the investors or any others that I left out? Was that most of them? Uh, no, I think that's most of them. And there's, a, there's plenty of like really incredible investors in the round, but they know who they are. Okay. Okay. So um, Black and Latinx uh, founders raised $15 billion for startups from 2015 through mid-2020. That's in venture capital funding. That does seem like a pretty big number, but it only represents about 2.4% of the total venture capital raised in that period of time. But in your case, you know, you've got firms like M25 that are pledging to invest in African-American companies. Do you think things are starting to change? And what are the challenges of being a Black entrepreneur like yourself nowadays? Good question. It's a hard question. I think that things are starting to change, but I think that change is slow. I think progress is always a slow thing, but I do think we're getting there. But I think we're never truly going to be there until we start putting more people in positions of power to take action on things that they personally care about. In this case, Black and Latinx founders. When I say that, I really think about how few black investors there are at the partner level or the GP level. And then I also think about how few black executives there are and Latinx executives there are. And I think that's where change really happens. A lot of companies talk about diversity, but when you actually look at diversity from a perspective of org chart, there's a lot of settling of color at the bottom of the chart. So I think that for this kind of change to happen, it's not a result of white people not caring about minorities. I think it's more a result of white people do care, but they haven't lived it and they haven't experienced it. So the things that they care about are things that they have lived and experienced. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that's really important too. We should have diversity uh, in positions of power so that all of the causes that matter are accounted for. I think it's unreasonable for us to expect someone who hasn't lived what we've lived to dedicate their life and their time to fixing that thing. They just don't care as much because they don't need to. It's not the same. So for me, I think that for real change to happen, we have to put positions, people in those positions that they really care deeply about that thing. People that have lived that. And I think we're getting there. Slowly but surely, I do think we're getting there. But I think there's a long way to go. So I think it starts with just hiring those positions. I think that when we look at Moves made by people like Alexis Ohanian, for example, you know, he stepped down 
from, from Reddit as a CEO so that a, a black individual could step in. I think that's incredible. So I think those moves, they push the bar further. They, they push the stone up the hill a little bit more, but it's still hard. Uh, and I think it's hard for different reasons today. I have a lot of calls now with investors who I know I check a box for. And that's a really hard thing. Uh, it's a really hard thing to, to be sharing something that you're so excited about, something that is your dream to build and to put into the world and to know that the person on the other side that you want to share this journey with you, that you want to sell a piece of your dream to only cares because you make them look better when it comes to the diversity in their portfolio. Nobody wants to be valued that way. So I think that the change needs to happen, but I think we have to approach it carefully so that Black and Latinx founders can keep their dignity. And we don't have to think that we're only raising money because of the color of our skin, or we're not raising money because of the color of our skin. I don't want that to be a factor in any capacity. So I think there's a lot of work to go. So that's interesting. You mentioned earlier on in the interview that Black Lives Matter played a role in the formation of your company. Uh, you kind of touched on some of these issues already, but how did that figure into the picture? I guess it did make a lot of institutional investors more sensitive to allocating money to uh, minority-led businesses. But can you provide a little bit more detail on that observation that you made about your formation in the early days of your company? Yeah, there were, we, just, we had a lot of calls where investors would confirm that I was African-American. Or they would say that they're excited to be working with us because of our diversity. And I think it's okay to say, I think it's a reasonable thing to say, but it still stings a little bit. It still stings to sometimes think that what we're building isn't enough. It doesn't stand on its own two legs. So I, I do believe that were it not for Black Lives Matters, we wouldn't have had as much interest as we had. Me being a Black founder makes me stand out, especially in gaming. So yes, it's a benefit now, but it's a benefit now because it was a negative before. And I think that's where the problem is. So I think that this situation is a lot like a pendulum swinging, where initially it was swinging to the, to the extreme negative. Now it's swinging a bit too much to the extreme positive for some people. But I really think it needs to settle right in the middle, where it's not really a real factor. So that's kind of just where it's at. And I think it's it's a tough thing, but I will say that everyone on the cap table today is on the cap table because they're excited about what we're building and not what I look like. Okay, great. So let's get up to date on uh, Medify. You launched less than a year ago in August, 2020. Uh, where do you stand now in terms of the number of employees and are you generating revenue? Yeah, we've got 14 employees today and we are generating revenue. We've been doubling revenue every month. In fact, profit remains small, but GMV is looking pretty decent. We're actually fairly public about this. I, I share it all on my Twitter every month. But last month we did 32,000. The month prior to that, we did 15,500. The month prior to that, about 7,000. And prior to that, about 3,000. So we've consistently been doubling monthly. I'm confident we'll hit 60,000 this month uh, in coach revenue. How does Medify make money? I guess you make a percentage of the, uh, you charge a fee, you know, the way an Airbnb would charge a fee for getting you a room. You get charged a fee for hooking somebody up with a coach. Yeah, we do charge a platform fee. And in the future, you know, we'll take a small percentage of transactions as well, but we're never going to do it in a way that we feel is damaging to an entrepreneur. 
when we look at the experts on our platform, we see them as our customer. The big difference between us and those that have come before us is that anytime you build a marketplace, you have to decide early on who your customer is. For our competitors, they've always decided the student was the customer. So the coaches were the ones when they made product decisions that took the hit. For us, it's the exact opposite. The coach is the customer for us in the same way that the business owner is the customer for Shopify. So we are building features around enabling them to make a living, monetizing their talent. So any monetization we do is in line with that idea of helping them do what makes them feel alive for a living. Okay. And let's talk about the popularity of gaming. So something like 214 million gamers in the US, that's like most of the US population, or at least half the US population. I guess that includes games from chess to Scrabble to video games. What's going on in that world now in terms of activity you're seeing at Medify? I think it's really interesting. We're seeing coaches succeed in games that have never had a coaching community around them. You know, we have coaches in the fighting game community that are on track to make 100,000 this year just coaching. We have coaches in the Pokemon video game community that don't even have an audience of their own and they're making $1,000 on a Saturday. So we're seeing some very interesting things happening in areas that many people didn't believe it was possible. But more than that, we're seeing a, a shift culturally in how gaming is perceived. There was a time when playing games was for the nerds, right? That's how gaming was when I grew up. And I never heard that's, that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's shifted a lot. You know, now gaming is in a place where it's cool to win. It's cool to win in gaming in the same way that it was cool to win in football when I was in school. And I think that that's a really important thing for Medify. And I think it's a really important thing for parents to think about. You know, when we were kids, and, and Steve, I'm sure you remember this as well, we would hop on calls with our friends and we'd talk sometimes for hours with our friends. And our parents never thought that was a weird thing or that was rotting our brains or damaging us. The way that kids interact with their peers now is through games. You know, so they're, they're interacting in the same way we, we interacted on calls, but they're doing it through games and they're doing it in ways that engage more of their brain than we were engaging. We were just on an audio call. But more than that, Games is where media is going. There's a reason that Netflix sees Fortnite as direct competition. Yeah. You know, we have Post Malone doing concerts for Pokemon, The Weeknd doing concerts for Fortnite. So we're seeing a, a cultural shift in the way that gaming is, is, is perceived. Okay. So looking ahead, are you planning to go public someday? You said you might want to try to build this into a billion dollar company. Are you going to raise more venture funding? And what's the greatest challenge that you have to face as a startup as, as you grow? And would you be open to selling the company at some point? Yeah, I think there's always a number. I think it would be foolish of me to say that I would never sell the platform, but it wouldn't be easy. If Amazon came to us tomorrow and they said, we'll give you 50 million for Medify, I would say no. For me, I think that we have an incredible opportunity to create a platform that enables the old guard to pass their knowledge on to the next generation and to retire with dignity. And that matters a lot to me. And, and I want to take this all the way. So the idea of selling just isn't it's not something I think about, not ever. In terms of raising more money, absolutely. We do intend on making this a world-level platform, you know, more than just in the US. We want to be in Asia. We want to be in Europe. So for us, of course, we'll raise more money near term. And then in terms of going public, I think that's the dream. I think that's where everyone wants to be. But I care a lot more about 
just changing things. You know, I care less about the money. If I wanted money, I would just go back to work, you know, but when it comes to impact, that matters a lot to me. You know, I, I want to see a world where people talk about Medify and they talk about how it changed their life. That's powerful to me. That's like a drug to me. And I think that any entrepreneur that is thinking about starting a startup, like they should know that this is hell. Entrepreneurship is a nightmare. Running a startup is a nightmare and it's hard and it's painful and you're going to make sacrifices every day. You're going to make sacrifices in the relationships you have with your friends and your family and your children and your significant others. And what you're building, you have to believe in enough to make those sacrifices in the first place. Because if you don't, someone else will and you'll lose and you'll waste years of your life as a result of it. So for us, we're all in. You know, we want to take this all the way. Well, Josh, that was a really thoughtful interview. Thanks for the very well thought out answers to the questions. And thanks for your candid thoughts on these types of issues. So thanks again, Josh Fabian, co-founder and CEO of Medify. Been great talking to you. Thanks for having me, Steve. Thanks for joining us for Behind the Buyouts. This is Steve Jelsey at The Deal. 